Good morning and welcome to the Rabin Report. I'm your host, Elliot Rabin, so get ready to get triggered. Hello and welcome to The Rabin Report. I'm your host, Elliot Rabin, and with me is my expert panel, as always, Amara, Samuel, and Jordan. How are you guys? Good. Great. (laughs) Awesome. We're all in a good mood today. Uh, We got a great show for you planned, as always. Uh, To begin, all opinions expressed are not those of Ryerson or Ryerson faculty and are only those of the individual commentators. Viewer discretion is advised. Before we get to the news, we'd just like to remind our viewers once again that we are now available everywhere. Did you miss the Rabin Report's live show? No problem. Now you can catch up on all past episodes on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Of course, you'll only be able to see our crazy reactions right here on Facebook and the clips on Instagram. But if you're driving to school, doing some homework, now you can listen to us anywhere, anytime. Coming up a little later in the show, we'll be talking about our main topic, the Wet'suwet'en protests. But first, let's take a look at our top stories in our weekly update, starting with Harvey Weinstein finally being charged. Um, What do you guys think of that? He was uh, charged, I believe, in two of his five counts. I think he was convicted on two of them. Yes. He was charged with five. Yeah. yeah. Um, So this is a a huge victory for uh, for the Me Too movement and for uh, victims of his uh, sexual uh, misconduct. Yeah, assault. Um, I just didn't know which specific uh, things he was... Uh, charged for, but I know that one of them was sexual assault and the other was uh, harassment, I believe. Um, I don't know exactly. I think one of them was rape in the third degree, and then I think the other one might have been some sort of forcible sexual conduct. That could have also been sexual assault. It just depends on the wording they used, but it was forcing himself on a woman. Mm -hmm. And yeah. He walked into the uh, the court on a walker. On a walker, walker. yeah, that was nice. It got more dramatic as the uh, the session went on, like just day to day. But then when he was convicted, he walked out perfectly fine. <laughs> yeah. Aww. He he definitely, like, there's no way in three months he just obviously had to get a walker. Like, <laughs> it, I think it's, it's a show. I it's find, a, he's from oh. Hollywood. I find it so funny that he started walking normally by the end of it. It's like, <laughs> he just gave it up. He just gave it up. It's just so important. Like, you know you lost. All right. Yeah, fuck it. Everything else yeah. is done. <laughs> Might as well walk to prison. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's, like you said, it's a victory for the Me Too movement. And, um, you know, if he sexually assaulted somebody, I think he should be in prison. So I, I'm yeah. not upset about it at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really don't think anybody's upset about it. I think everybody's <laughs> celebrating the fact that, you know, somebody who did something wrong is getting punished for it, which I think is, is always the ideal solution. Um, and I think it sets a good precedent for people who do commit these acts that there is consequence for their action, right? Yeah, I agree. I think that's what the Me Too movement is about, right? Like, I think um, people feeling uncomfortable in work places and people kind of using their power to um, coerce people or just outright forcing someone like he did and then using their power to coerce them into staying quiet. So that's obviously awful. And yeah, I think it's a great victory for that and sets a really good precedent. Yeah, I think it's just about seeing some sort of like retribution. I think Mm -hmm. it's the idea that these claims were brought, they were talked about for a while. I think a lot of people were worried they would just sort of fizzle out of the news cycle. And I think the fact that there was a definitive end to this, and I say that and watch in like nine months, there's going to be an article, (laughs) Harvey Weinstein 
released on jail, released from jail, or some, something like that. Is he going to jail for that? I'm yeah, I think yeah, yeah. yeah. And like the next, the other big one, obviously, is Bill Cosby, who's in yeah. prison. And I think a lot of like, there's been whispers of sexual harassment or sexual assault stories for decades with various celebrities and they usually just kind of fade out of um the public consciousness so i'm like you said i'm glad that something's actually being done about it mm-hmm. and yeah but, it's legal and <laughs> and we do have a comment coming in from marshall he says wording differs state to state and as well as from state to federal court but sexual assault is generally considered the most acceptable umbrella term yeah. so um while you know he's making a point that while wording is important i think we can all agree this this is sexual assault and we did. know what mm-hmm. people mean well, like we don't like he said we know what sexual assault means it is an umbrella term but i think everybody understands what what they're getting at so yeah jordan you wanted to say something uh, I did, and I completely blanked on it. So it's <laughs> no worries. Well, then let's move on to our next uh, item of business, which is stalling business, the coronavirus. Um, it Clearly, they said that they made a mistake because now we have two more confirmed victims, uh, uh, well, victims, but two more confirmed cases in Ontario, uh, and the doctors believe that the incubation period they got wrong, it's now 28 days. And <laughs> it's it, a double? But, <laughs> You know, it's and then I'm just worried that now, you know, they wait 28 days and then after that somebody's going to come out and be like, I have coronavirus and be like, you know what, the incubation's three months. Sorry, we. I do think that, um, I mean, yeah, that's you know, like alarming, <laughs> but um, I still think that we should keep. I just think in general we should keep a cool head because, genuinely, what are you going to do? You know, mm-hmm. like the same thing with um, the swine flu. I remember that and being like terrified of it, and it's like. All you can really do is wash your hands and you can choose to stay home if you don't want to go out, if you don't have to. Like, that's up to you. But I think, um, yeah. And seeing world governments, though, like national governments, um, kind of fumble it is a little bit, a little bit scary. I mean, the market, uh, the market dropped um, after on Monday and Tuesday. It just started to go down. And uh, I believe the I don't know if it's the Dow or the TSX. But they lost uh, I think all, it was the Dow. The all yearly Dow? gains. Yeah, all yearly gains lost just in the past. I think two that days. has a lot to do also with Trump's like we, the, the weird way he's handling it and talking well, that about it. That was before it. the the eight percent drop was last week, and his press conference was uh, yesterday. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they've been talking about him like he hasn't been really taking it seriously for a long time. Not just the press conference. Yeah, just the way in which he's been handling it. Conference. Um, yeah, well, there is something you can do, like the. Um, Canada's Minister for Health said you should stockpile food and medication, uh, which is always a good idea. You should always have stocked food and supplies, medical supplies, extra months mm-hmm. worth of necessary or required medication. Here's my yeah. thing with that. I agree that that's a very good point. I'm just worried that the wording of that is just going to cause public panic. Like, I agree. You should always have food piled up and you should have medication piled up. But if I see an article saying you need to <laughs> stockpile food, you need to stockpile medicine... I don't know about you. If I'm informed on the issue, I think national emergency. But what does that mean? Because I like everyone saying we should, everybody should kind mm-hmm. of have an emergency plan. Mm-hmm. But you can only control yourself, and I think the yeah. fear is some sort of like civil unrest because people are afraid of dying. Yeah. Uh, well, you can follow um, if you're following what's happening in uh, northern Italy. There's a military quarantine, uh, and they there's videos I've seen of people going into grocery stores mm-hmm. and you know. Uh, there's like the shelves are just completely empty. Right. People are shocked. Like, oh, I didn't think it was going to happen so quickly. So, and that's terrifying. Like, just yeah. the idea of a grocery mm-hmm. store being completely. empty. And there's a there's a, it's a military enforced uh, quarantine. Like, really, you can go to jail for three months if you disobey the quarantine in these well, specific villages in northern Italy. But I think also um, Canada is probably 
better off than Italy is in mm-hmm. terms of just handling it like administratively. Well, we'll, well see. Well, just to con- just okay. to continue on Italy, we have a comment coming in from Rally that says the authorities have handled this poorly, especially in Italy. And Zahavi says Israel is developing a vaccine that they expect to be ready within the next three weeks. So. Italy is obviously with the military enforcement. It, it it adds to what Jordan was saying about the hysteria, right? Yeah, and I think also with vaccines, it takes a long time for them to be available to the public. Mm-hmm. So they can be developed and tested on people who are willing to be tested on, but it still takes a pretty long time for like just regular people to be able to get it. So, I uh, mean, it's it's scary. It all is... I also scary. worry whenever there's a new vaccine made that they're going to patent it and make it super, super I was going to say, are you an anti-vaxxer? Are you no. That? <laughs> Could you imagine? I mean, like, <laughs> I'm autism? upset that there's vaccines being made <laughs> for this disease. I think, no, but I feel like it's a way, especially in the way that I think poor people necessarily not are at risk more of disease. I think that's a weird thing to say, but I mean, sort of that the fact that, like, this is especially, like, people say their way to avoid it is, like, avoid public transportation, avoid stuff like that. Stuff that not necessarily always is, but does sometimes lead to some sort of socioeconomic barrier. Even stock Piling food, you'd exactly. Have to you have to food. have the money to stockpile food. Someone on food stamps can't probably afford to stockpile food. And I'm worried. With, while a vaccine is great, I'm worried it's going to be in the hands of the wrong people, mm-hmm. and, well, and it, we're going to see a vaccine that's only available to people who probably don't really. You need ever it. played the original Deus Ex? I have not. Okay, it that that is exactly the plot to that game. <laughs> um, there's like a, a government made uh, artificial pandemic, and they let it spread, and then they selectively distribute the vaccines. It's well, great- in there Canada, a- we'll probably be okay. Like, we probably won't yeah. have to pay for it, so... We probably won't need it, to be completely honest. I'm, care here. I'm still pretty yeah, on we probably the side won't need it. that it's yeah. not as big of a deal as the new cycles make it How many people in Canada in total have it? And how many... Was five? And how was many ten. of those are serious ten? cases? Ten. Yes. I believe I've, it was ten, and then two had since recovered. The first two Yeah, cases I've also read that there are some cases where, it, you, it, like, the symptoms are mild enough that hospitalization is not necessary. Yeah, self-isolate. Yeah, so that's obviously like reassuring to hear that if you, you know, hospitals are scary. So if you don't need to be in a hospital, that means they don't think you're going to die. So if you can just recover at home, that's pretty. I also feel like wording is especially important in this. Like, because the symptoms are so similar to symptoms of the flu in mild uh, situations, and it's the middle of winter in yes. Canada, yep. and we have people who probably go to the doctors who are a bit of hypochondriacs and are going like, I have all these symptoms, I looked it up online, I have the coronavirus, and I'm sure a doctor, and that's it, because there's not a ton known about it, could only say, well, it's possible you might have it, although we can't confirm it, which could be counted as not a confirmed case necessarily, but it adds to the hysteria going around. Mm-hmm. I just... I know that there is a lot of people being like, we're, we're so scared of it. I just, I don't think it's that serious. Yeah, yeah, and I think, like, the symptoms are pretty similar to the flu. So, like, if you have a cough or a sore throat, go to the doctor. Like, it, you should definitely go to the doctor considering what's happening. But I just don't think that hysteria is the best thing to do mm-hmm. or best way to go about You should be well, prepared. Yeah, not hysterical. Yeah. yeah. Well, spe- let's let's actually continue on the topic of hysteria and move on to our next subject, which is the Democratic debate in South Carolina. Uh, there's clearly a lot of uh, hysteria and conflict within the Democratic Party. Who's the best person to uh, lead the ticket Bernie to Sanders. beat uh, to beat uh, <laughs> Donald Trump in the next election? And Amara, we obviously know that you're pro uh, Bernie Sanders, but let's talk about the actual debate itself that occurred in South Carolina. We talked about a debate last week. It feels like at this point it's a <clears throat> weekly thing. You and know, it they're goes gonna on get us, until November. Yeah, it's going to get as consistent as the Rabin Report, which we don't know. So uh, <laughs> their election cycle is way too long. That's all I'm saying. It's 100%, exhausting. Yeah. But um, I can't believe sh- it's still the primaries. Like, I know. I feel like they've been going on forever. Forever, and it's barely like 
started. So what uh, what's everyone's take? I know Sam, uh, you watched it. You guys watched the highlights. Uh, Jordan <laughs> and Amara. Uh, no, that's fair. It's a long debate. Two hours of them. Uh, you know, it's hard to get through. But you can only uh, handle so uh, much. Yeah. Be the judge. Yeah, I was gonna say some <laughs> of them are hard to get through. Two hours of not. Uh, all I, had, of them. I had popcorn and a beer. I was having a great time. And what was your what's your takeaway from uh, that? Well, it was very obvious that everyone was piling on Sanders because he's the, the front runner. Um, but uh, I, I really was surprised. I think uh, uh, Bloomberg mm-hmm. had a much better showing than the first time uh, in the first debate with Bloomberg. Um, mm-hmm. what's, his, what's her name? Warren just like dogpiled him. Like mm-hmm. he was, he he, and he and his poll numbers showed he was um, treading actually quite close close to Bernie nationally. And then after the debate, it jumped down. But um, I think he, I think he did a pretty good job, mm-hmm. and he he's very uh, he just he just uh, he had he had some hit and misses with bad jokes. Um, I can't recall them exactly, but they were just terrible. Right. But he just like flat out admitted that he bought congressmen and congresswomen, uh, you know, like a little Freudian slip. I just thought mm-hmm. it was it was hilarious. Well, uh, Amara, just to challenge you uh, by one of the comments we're getting, uh, Zahavi <laughs> says that. Uh, he thinks Pete was the best. He was the most assertive and level-headed and had good one-liners. Amar, what is your response? Um, I don't think good one-liners are something that we should look for in a president. I think we should look for good policies and good governance. And you believe Bernie has the best policies out yeah. of everybody? Yes. Okay. Jordan, what's your take on the debate? Who was your favorite uh, candidate? I'm with Amara. I'm a bit of a Bernie bro myself. I'd also responding to the comment if I can. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I think it's easy to be level-headed in a debate amongst Democrats. I don't think that because when there's while they're differing in opinions, at least like when you're along party lines, there's still enough similarity and overlap that's a little easier. You're not going against someone with complete, complete opposite opinions of you. At least that's what I find. And I think being assertive, like yes, that's good, but it's also the same qualities that people like yelled at Hillary for having it's inherent sexism in that, but we're not going to get into that because I could argue that for a while. Uh, but yeah, I'm team Bernie and I am not team Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> yeah, me neither. I don't like Pete Buttigieg very much. And uh, look at uh, let's look at Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar, uh, Tom Sawyer. What's his name? Sayer. Sayer. Sawyer. Whatever. I don't even see like he's clearly not very relevant because I don't even know his name properly. Uh, Tom, so you said it was... Sayer? Sayer, yeah, yeah. Tom Sayer. Um, what's he saying? I don't know. He's like the <laughs> climate change uh, candidate. Like, that's his whole focus is climate change, justice, and now that ties to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's all I yeah. know about him. <laughs> uh, well, coming back to you, Omar, Zahavi's back. Um, in the context of a debate, one-liners are important. Bernie crapped the bed when he was called out for supporting Castro. That's actually uh, some... Uh, good point he made about uh bernie supporting castro he, didn't. he supported his literacy program he didn't also, support a dictatorship what well, if he can if zahavi can comment again more <laughs> why are one-liners important in the context of a debate i'm, I'm not following because that people logic. are gonna like tweet about them and it's gonna get attention because most voters are fickle and yes. stupid and that's all yes. they'll pay attention to they'll pay attention to headlines and stuff like that and even uh, the thing about supporting castro like I would. I'm not a Bernie supporter by any means, but I think it's really disingenuous to say that he just because Castro. he sorts one policy doesn't mean. Uh, oh, like that. We're you, all you can, together. It's like the whole like conservative ink, their whole running, uh, I guess, motto, I, especially during the campaign, is going to be oh, uh, socialism, socialist, yeah, uh, communist. I agree with that, and, and I, yeah, I think it's disingenuous. And, uh, I know Marshall, if he's still in here, has discussed this before. Wouldn't a, a better approach for conservatives be? 
why are young people in any age demographic ex, um, extreme, being more interested in socialism or left-wing economic because policies? Because they're poor. Exactly. What are the conditions economically, because socially, Because we feel whatever? like we have no hope for an economic okay. future. Yeah, yeah, probably you're right. Uh, why are people getting disenfranchised? So that's a better question. Mm-hmm. Then, like, Neoliberalism and ju- globalization. Just saying, uh, communism? It, that's, what does that appeal to 20% of people between the ages of 50 and 80? Mm-hmm. Like, it's so tired. I also think... Um, this the, there's a lot of moderates, right? People calling themselves moderates the democratically, and I think they're going to split that moderate democratic vote. So I think that's good for Bernie as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't think Bernie's crapping the bed. He did pretty well in Nevada, so I think he's doing pretty okay. Uh, yeah, Hendrik comes in says bad comment, Zahavi, not a single one liner. Okay, so he <laughs> doesn't even believe that uh, Pete Buttigieg has some one liners. But that's, no, I think he was I saying he, said, he didn't yeah. make it. He didn't use Zahavi's any one-liners. comments was bad because there they were didn't no include any one liners. Ah, got it. Okay. <laughs> Might even say he crapped the bed. Marshall, I, I check out your Twitter feed. Don't worry. Yeah, I've seen it. Um, we're just having conversation. <laughs> well, listen, we're th- we're very thankful to our viewers for commenting because we appreciate their points of view and it it adds to discussion. But now let's move on to our main topic. Which is the Wet'suwet'en blockades. According to CTV News, on December 31st, 2019, the BC Supreme Court granted Coastal GasLink an expanded injunction against the Wet'suwet'en Nation members blocking access to the project. Uh, the Coastal GasLink pipeline is a $6.6 billion, 670-kilometer pipeline that would carry natural gas across northern BC. Now, GasLink says the route was approved based on discussions with, uh, I quote, indigenous landowner and stakeholder input, the environment, archaeological and cultural values, land use com- compatibility, safety, constructability, and economics, end quote. They also said they signed agreements with the elected council of all 21st nations along the route, including the Wet'suwet'en. But according to leaders in the Wet'suwet'en, sorry, I just hit puberty apparently, uh, but according to leaders in the Wet'suwet'en nation, they never surrendered its aboriginal title, otherwise known as its inherent right to the land. This conflict has caused solidarity protests across the country, with protesters blocking access to rail lines, legislatures, and port entries. Trains have been cancelled, goods aren't able to be delivered, and the economy is at stake. On today's episode, our panel examines the facts and the fiction surrounding the issue. We'll talk about the pipeline project itself, the government's response, as well as the economic impact of these blockades. As a reminder, we are live on Facebook, so continue to comment on our show to have your thoughts read live on air. Uh, we're going to start with our poll. Uh, we asked our audience, uh, are you for or against the pipeline protest? And Sam, what were the results? So on Facebook, we had 44 votes. 23 said yes. 21 said no mm-hmm. in support of the protests. Mm-hmm. 52% said yes. 48% no. And on Instagram, we had 14 votes. Uh 13 people said no, one person said yes. So that's 93 to and 6, 7. Huh. Yeah. Um, that wor- one person was Amara. I th- yeah. I thought that this would stay anonymous, yeah. honestly. <laughs> Jeez. Well, everybody can, everybody can see. but <laughs> feel a little uh, exposed. No, they that's, can see that's who a, voted for what. Well, I, the 
we can see who voted. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know you yeah. were tolerant. Well, That's it's okay. I mean, you're obviously going to say your view on the show anyway, but um, it's just it's just quite interesting to see the dynamics uh, again. So, because uh, last time we were talking about uh, you know voting on Instagram, and you mentioned that uh, it's a lot more uh, left wing on Instagram and more conservative on Facebook. It's it's quite interesting that it's even more uh, against the pipeline this time on Instagram than it is on Facebook. But before we get to your responses, let me ask the question to you guys. Let me open it up. Are you for or against the pipeline, Amara? Um, the pipeline? Or uh, sorry, the protest. The protest. Um, I would say I'm for it. Like there's nuance to my that opinion, mm-hmm. but I would I support them, the protesters. Okay, Samuel. No, no, you're against it. And Jordan. Uh, I support the protesters. You support the protesters. Okay, now let's get into why, Amara. Um. Well, I mean. There's a lot of political conflict like within the Wet'suwet'en nation between the hereditary and elected chiefs. And I think even within those two groups as well, um, they're obviously not a monolith, but they have like a political system mm-hmm. that should be adhered to. Um, but I think the main issue is that it's the land is not ceded. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what um, is going to start causing a lot of problems as development continues, because if it's unceded land, then... I mean, obviously, the government can do what they want by force, but if they're trying to be, you know... Uh, legally sound according to the constitution mm. then it's not um, theirs. and do you mind expanding on the difference between the hereditary chiefs and the uh you, you said the elected chiefs elected so chiefs. as far as i know um i did take an indigenous governance course but mm-hmm. i could be wrong <laughs> i just want to say that yeah um the hereditary chiefs are what uh the tribe had themselves like inherently and it's not hereditary in the way we would think of like a monarchy it's more where um like the chief picks their next their successor and it, their successor would have to be approved by others and stuff like that. And then the elected chiefs were put in place by the Indian Act. Um, so obviously they're elected. So that's why there are two different governance systems. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Samuel, what's your response to that? Uh, to the, to Amara's the structure of the native groups? Uh, just, uh, no, to her previous comments oh, about okay. why she's against, she's for the protests. Sure. Um, well, just a little bit of context. Um, the natural gas pipeline that... If no one has yeah, researched coastal it, coastal gas link, yeah, yeah, it uh, it would ship natural gas to China, mm-hmm. uh, East Asia, whatever. Uh, the pipeline, the proposed route of it, was going to go through twenty uh, Native American areas, twenty different tribes, yeah. And the nineteen of the twenty approved of it, elected and hereditary. I don't know if the, that structure's uh, yeah, it might not similar be for, for every, every single, single tribe, but. More or less, they agree, they agreed to it. There was mm-hmm. a there was a majority uh, agreement, and then one of the tribes, the what what to said Watuwetin, Watu whatever, uh, the elected ones said yes. They approved of it. Uh, a majority of the hereditary chiefs said yes. It is a minority. I believe it's five out of eight that said they didn't agree to the uh, to the pipeline mm-hmm. and the proposal. So, Canadian rail infrastructure, uh, which is crucial to national security, economic security, is being held hostage, in, a, in more or less, by a percentage of a minority of one tribe involved in a pipeline. It just seems really ridiculous to me. And I, I had the definition of domestic terrorism here. Uh, it's a political or religious theological purpose. Uh, sorry, I'm reading that wrong. Uh, defines terrorism an act committed in whole or part for a political whatever, uh, with regard to its security, including its economic security, or compelling a person, a government, or domestic or international organization to refrain from doing any act. So are that's you, are Justice you, Canada. It's not some. Are you calling what the protests are domestic terrorism? Uh, I think 
initially when they were protesting, uh, like I, there was some in Queens Park. I wouldn't call that domestic terrorism. It's not disrupting national security or essential services. But I, I've seen plenty of videos um, of like fires being lit on and near the tracks. Uh, Premier Legault from Quebec said people are brandishing firearms in or around the protests or tangentially. I've heard to of it. people also like purposely derailing trains, like putting things on the tracks. Yeah, yeah. So yeah the there's video of that. Yeah, uh, so that is, I would definitely describe that as dom- domestic terrorism. Amara? I think an effective, most effective protests would be described as as domestic terrorism. <sighs> are you, I think are you, effective, does it give it the moral right to exist? Should the state intervene, even if it is Well, protest? I mean, I think some of the things that happened during the civil rights movement would have been considered domestic terrorism. I feel like that's, I mean, you can't argue with the definition, but I don't think that that necessarily means that they're wrong. You know, states are not, always morally right they could be doing something wrong like apartheid in south africa or like what the civil rights act you know jim crow laws in the states um during the civil rights movement those were very immoral and i think domestic terrorism if that's what we're going to call it was absolutely justified in those situations but i don't think so things like firearms and setting fires and derailing trains i absolutely don't support i don't think um anybody i don't think it's that intense in this situation but like i was saying i do think that most effective protests would be considered domestic terrorism and i support their right to protest and what they're protesting for so zahavi's back and he says <laughs> that they're breaking the law what's your take on that like i said most effective protests are breaking some sort of law and during the civil rights movement it was illegal for black people to drink from certain water fountains i mean you could argue that they were breaking the law by doing so but i'm not going to think that they're wrong for that so i, I think that that you can only hold that position with uh with foresight and the fact that they're breaking the law just because there was a moral, uh, they had a moral right in the past to break the law, sure. But I don't think that can be used in this case. Well, I don't think breaking the law can be used. I, that's what I'm saying. I don't well, think breaking the law, the law is a good argument. It, defi- it defines what's wrong and what's right in a society. Yeah, right? racism is wrong. And I think this building on unceded land is pretty wrong. And I think if you're going to argue that the treatment of indigenous people in right. Canada isn't historically racist, that's going to be We're talking thing. about this case in particular. In this case in particular, if you want to talk about indigenous sovereignty, if you want to, that's the axiom we're going to use, a majority of the tribes agree to it. And even within this Wet'suwet'en, yep. oh, I just actually Wet'suwet'en, said it right. Wet'suwet'en uh, tribe, majority of the elected and hereditary chiefs agree to it. Uh, so if we want to talk about respecting indigenous sovereignty, I think uh, mm-hmm. we're just... Well, I, sovereignty doesn't, like, the wet sweat and people are all, well, not all of them, I understand, but those who are protesting there mm-hmm. are obviously exercising their own sovereignty in terms of protesting. Well, so I think in, that's in a way, doing. wouldn't you say they're delegitimizing their, not their sovereignty, but they, the way their pseudo-state operates? Yes, why, 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 I, why, I do. Why would the Canadian government give any credence to a decision passed by the wet Wetans or any tribe in the future if a very, very vocal and violent minority minority can disrupt the whole process. I think that there obviously needs to be like a complete overhaul of the way that the Canadian government interacts with the indigenous peoples in Canada. They're not all, they're not a monolith. They don't all have the same governance systems. They're all very different. It's very political. So yeah, I I would say that it undermines it, but I don't think it's a good system to begin with. Now, would you say that what the um, government wants to do, the fact that they have... They have arrested people on the actual uh, land. Um, do you believe that w- what they're fighting for is against a violation of human rights? I think arresting people like on the land in BC would be a violation of human rights, but I don't think arresting people in like Ontario that are blocking the go at Guildwood is a violation mm-hmm. of human rights. No, and I'd, I'd like to mention we 
talked about it briefly before the show. Um, a lot of the people that are involved in these blockades and the violent ones aren't even indigenous people. They're mm-hmm. uh, you've, maybe some of the viewers have heard of the white savior complex. These people that just believe they they have the need to just insert themselves in issues that really don't involve them and think they can come to the come to the savior or come to the the rescue of these downtrodden minorities. I think it's really ridiculous. I think the white savior complex definitely exists. And I do think that some of this is probably some of that. And there's obviously just like generally anti-pipeline environmentalists, I'm sure, no. piggybacking on it. Um, but Yeah, I saw Extinction Rebellion. Was, they had their sign or whatever. Present one of the protests, I believe it was in Quebec. I think that um, they're solidarity protests. So I don't think we would assume that they're all like wet to wet in people because they're mm-hmm. obviously not. Yeah. Uh, one thing I want to talk about briefly, uh, the whole, you know, Obviously, the backdrop to this is environmental policy. Uh, as we all know, as we've discussed, China and East Asia, Southeast Asia is a giant, the world's biggest polluter, and that is partially due to their consumption of coal. And this would make them consume less coal. They would make it would natural make, gas. It's natural gas. It's cleaner. It has less emissions. I and mean, if you really wanted to have a macro, global scale, wouldn't you support this initiative? I think that's a good point because I definitely, sorry. sorry, I support the like, like Canadian is all I can really talk about. Mm-hmm. Support Canada shifting to renewable energy sources in general. But I do think that China and India obviously pollute a lot. And I think there's a good case to be made for the fact that you know, they're burning coal and that's way worse for the environment than natural gas. Yeah. I also though do believe that I feel like it's such an old news story about them trying to build a pipeline (laughs) on land that's not theirs. And then they finally get it done and then it leaks and it destroys the land. And I feel like that's exactly what is going to go happen. So yes, it might lower China's carbon footprint for like a hot second, Mm -hmm. but I think it could arguably have worse ecological impacts on the actual land here in Canada, which if I had to pick one to care more about, that's what I care about. But what's, what's, better a pipeline or by ship or because ships have uh I mean, trains they have derailed well, ships if, have neither have, if we're talking about possibly like harming indigenous land which is obviously what this is all like not all about there's a solidarity protests but in beginning in bc that's what this is about and um they obviously have a different relationship to their actual physical land than we do so i think mm-hmm. That should be something to be considered if it's mm-hmm. possible that it's also, just going to be destroyed. I also think it's more so the principle of the thing more so than anything else. Like, yes, there's not a majority who necessarily agrees with it within the population. But if the if the government of Canada says that we have this treaty with you guys, that basically means that your land is, has what you guys want to do with it. And it's fully up to you guys and we won't intervene. But then the moment that they want to build something or something like that, they automatically just choose to immediately go back on it. Like, it's, Well, that's the thing. There's no treaty at all. There's nothing, but there's an agreement. I think there's sort of an agreement. Well, it's unsuited land, so wasn't there expressly no agreement? Yeah, but I think can the way that Canada's like yeah. modernly kind of, you know, functioned in relation to indigenous people, mm-hmm. it's kind of an understanding mm-hmm. that they but have they, some sort of sovereignty over mm-hmm. their land. But then the moment that it's inconvenient for the government of Canada to let them have that sovereignty, they take it away essentially. Well, I think so- we can sorry, also talk about Justin Trudeau's <laughs> you're gonna talk about this, I know, but that's where I was wait, going I next. Um, yeah, well, I'll get back to you. But let's—you mentioned a good point. The the response of the government, and that's where we're going to move to next. Uh, what has been the government's response, and do you support it? Um, as I, not much. I don't think Justin Trudeau has really <laughs> done much about it. Um, and I think he in general is just not—he's just not great. I mean. If we can talk about the climate strike again, he was at the climate strike. I don't like he's the government. So he was literally effectively striking against himself. Like He should have gone to work maybe and then not bought the pipeline um, if he supported the climate strike movement. So, yeah, because he I I 
he called for a quick resolution hmm. to the situation, but he is part of that resolution, so shouldn't he? He's also part he, of the problem. I said, well, yeah. yeah. I feel like this might ever standing opinion on anything Justin Trudeau does. He's the perfect face, but he has <laughs> just not a lot going on behind it. He's just so, uh, I don't know, he just feels very He's very good at appearing to yes. look what's right, but then the moment you put a little more thought behind him, you're like, wait a second, you realize that it's just it's a complete show. for There's no substance behind it, I find. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think he's in, a, he's in a hard spot because he can either you know, enforce the law and then lose a lot of his left-wing supporters or he could do nothing and then he's not going to gain back people that oppose the pipeline. I mean, those would, or, sorry, that support the pipeline. He wouldn't gain those people back by, you know, acting. So, yeah, it's just a weak, what do you expect? It's like a weak, mm-hmm. no spine, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Zahavi is back. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> Truly, thank you, Zahavi, for commenting. We really appreciate it. Um, it he says, right. his hands are tied by his own doing for trying to appease the oil and gas industry and the climate activists. So that goes back to exactly what you said, Samuel, that, uh, you know, if he does one thing, he loses support. Uh, and then if he does the other, he doesn't really gain support. It's just stalled. He's going to have to show his cards. His press conference he did last week with all his uh, weak-looking ministers behind him, he basically shifted blame or the responsibility towards the provincial governments in dealing with it, more or less. He said the federal government has no involvement, okay? And then he said it's up to premiers uh, to enforce their laws. But the federal government should have, or should put forth a national, especially in times of crisis, which this is, a, a national national unity or national you know, spirit, that unifies the country in a, in a, a singular purpose. But what I, would I that be? That. How, how would you unify the country if people mm. are so split up? And I think that could be dangerous because I don't <laughs> think that we want to unify the country against indigenous people. No, which, not aden- against indigenous people. No, and I don't people. think that's what you're saying. No. I think that's what it could be perceived as by certain people. And I think um, well, same he, kind he, of thing with like the coronavirus. People who are going to be like racist in situations like these probably aren't going to take the time to try to figure out if they're being racist to the right people. So I think... I, yeah, I think he's in a really hard spot. Um, he's also not that great, so I think he's not going to mm-hmm. do that well. I think when, uh, Harper would have done better. When but. Pierre Trudeau said, just watch me, and he declared the War Measures Act in Quebec under the FLQ crisis, I don't think he worried about the uh, the sympathies of far-right communist separatists, right? I mean, no I, matter what... What are you talking about? The FLQ crisis. Who are the far-right communist separatists you're talking about? The FLQ. Oh, not in relation... I think how, he's okay, giving an example. Of, like, no, I understand example. the example. Yeah, how say, is that going to yeah. relate yeah. Well, to this? If because, I can respond to that example, one, actually. One at a time, Samuel, and Pierre then we'll go to Jordan. When he used his office and his authority in a People time were of, also dying. Yes, so. I know. One person died. Uh, in a time of national crisis, there, he disregarded the minority fringes that might disagree with them in, in, the, in, the, in the cause of national unity and national action. And I don't see that here. And he should learn something from his father. Maybe only that, because the rest of it's pretty bad. Jordan? Yeah, that's what I'd argue, is that he's not his dad. And that's one of the whole points, is that he's trying to be every side's best friend. And when you were holding such a high position of office, mm-hmm. that is only going to backfire on you. There's exactly. not a way that someone doesn't make end everyone up happy. upset, and that upset is always going to be directed at him. I think at this point, <clears throat> he just needs to... 
you know, pick a side. Like, <laughs> yeah, do something. Show, you know, I did just watch Hamilton this weekend, so Aaron Burr is on my mind. But show your political hand a bit. Like, don't be afraid to keep everything so close to your chest and support everyone. Let them know who you're supporting because that will affect a lot of the public opinion as well. So, I, so who do you think the government should support? What do you think the government should do? What should their response be? Jordan? I think their response, they should... I mean, aren't they shouldn't build the pipeline. If they should, they should build it somewhere else. Like, I don't know where necessarily. I don't. Why shouldn't they build the pipeline? Because in respect. Build the pipeline there. Like, there. Like, they can yeah. still build a pipeline if they want, but then do it on. But the land. majority agree to it. The majority agree to it, but not everyone. The majority is not, not how. If it clearly, <laughs> it clearly, if it was already a decided issue amongst the Wetsuin clan, there wouldn't be these protests going on. Yeah, because there's always, no matter what political decision, any decision in life, there's always a minority that opposes it. It doesn't give them, we don't give any. Group that's no matter how small the credence to disrupt. Clearly, by the support across Canada, I'd argue it's not that small. Well, a the couple minority hundred, a couple group. hundred people. It's a country of thirty-three. As million. we've said, it's enough to stop uh, enough of the railroads. It's enough of the trains. It's enough to that's cause true. an actual. Here's the thing: if it wasn't that big of a deal, we wouldn't be talking about it here. Oh, and that that's the. What? I hate that justification so much. Well, it's there, a it's a real justification. No, if it could... wasn't news, if it wasn't on people's radar, mm-hmm. we wouldn't be talking Wait, about it. Wait, can I just ask? Yeah. Are you saying that you don't think domestic terrorism is a big deal because no, you compared deal. that exactly. to this? So why no. are you annoyed no, I, that Jordan said it's a big deal? It, it is a big deal. I'm talking about uh, when a small group, oh, okay. just like, because there's a minority of a political group that makes a decision, we shouldn't give that much credence to that small group and re- ignore the larger... In a democratic in a, nation. Supposedly. Yeah. I think that uh, in terms of the situation, I think the government should uh, definitely like the setting fires and stuff like I mentioned before, the violent things need to stop. But I think this is just makes it clear that the government needs to really overhaul how they deal with indigenous people in Canada. And it's very difficult because when I mean, they've thrown money at the problem for a lot of time and that hasn't helped, obviously. And then there's obviously the issue of sovereignty. So indigenous people don't necessarily want the Canadian government going in and making decisions for them. So I think there needs to be, I don't know, maybe another royal commission, but a real effort in changing the way that the indigenous community is not necessarily like is treated but also dealt with by the government because it's obviously not working and it hasn't been working it hasn't ever worked so what do you think sorry uh what do you think the response of the government should be then to like this specific incident to this whole issue um i think that they should probably go ahead with the pipeline and i only just say that because the majority of the wet'suwet'en people and the other tribes agreed to it and i do think if we're going off of democracy that's what should happen but i don't think again it's clear that it's not working and the system that they're trying to use in order to make these decisions isn't working so there needs mm-hmm. to be some change i'd argue that while there some people are in for the pipeline i'd also argue that it's more so about what this whole issue represents like you said yes. it's about more than this pipeline it's not like once this pipeline is resolved it's solved one way or another this is more so a face of a lot of deeper issues i agree but i think in um i mean the blockades definitely are gonna have to end at some point i mean the way i look at it is like fires and stuff bad don't do that (laughs) but the blockades are an effective protest that is causing an actual not sort of response from the government but causing a need for a response from the government it's very easy to ask for like peaceful protests stuff like that which i think protests should be peaceful would you uh support a a bridge being blown up i would no one gets hurt i is it bad that my first thought is which bridge? <laughs> yeah, it, is, it is bad. <laughs> Probably not, if I'm being the honest. The context matters. Yeah. The context matters as well, yeah. though. Like, there are 
plenty of examples of there are plenty um, of small bridges that wouldn't be that. <laughs> no, that's all no. I was say. <laughs> there are plenty of examples of protests in other situations that have been maybe violent or not as peaceful as going to Queens Park and yelling on the yeah. lawn. But, but I, I think that it's more effective. effective. And it depends if, what you're protesting against. If they just went to a park and yelled with signs, you know what I think would have happened? I think the pipeline would be built already. I think nothing else would have happened. I argue that because you need to have some bit of forcefulness to an extent, to a reasonable extent, which I think is a very important asterisk to put there, to show that there is some bar, uh, there's some bite behind your bark, essentially, mm-hmm. that you're not all talk. Because it's been proven in the past that a lot of peaceful, peaceful protests will tend to fail for the most part. Wasn't, but, um, this is interesting. I, I'm reminded of the dichotomy between um, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. I mean, wasn't Martin Luther King, wasn't his brand of revolution in the end more successful? I'm like, I don't necessarily. I know you one needed the other to succeed in a way. Um, yeah, not necessarily. I think. Um, I mean, if you, you obviously know about their differences. Um, mm. and I don't think Malcolm X was necessarily wrong in the way that, or somebody mm. on his side, like the Black Panther Party. I don't think they were. I mean, at the end, things kind of fell off. But mm. I think in general, like arming themselves and considering what was going on. Well, that was Black, legal when they were. Yes, arming no, themselves. that's not. But this is illegal. That was part of what caused people not to like sure. them even people malcolm to be x to afraid of them knowledge wasn't violent in um, the sense that he, he wasn't he, as uh, he, he Mal- supported martin luther king action. was like a pacifist yes and martin and malcolm x was not martin luther king would have said like turn the other cheek and malcolm x would have said like go get your gun if they're aggressing against you so i don't sure. think either of them is necessarily right i don't think you can i mean this is off topic but i don't I think know. you can look at somebody i just thought it living in like similar pre-Civil Rights Act America, like a black person living in pre-Civil Rights Act America and tell them that they should be nonviolent and peaceful in their protest because horrible things were happening to them. So, mm-hmm. well, A very shallow analogy, but I thought I'd mention it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, then it's it's really hard to, to understand what the government should do then because you believe... hard being prime minister. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what they should do. Hard decisions. The problem has been ignored. And put aside because it's politically expedient to do so because it's a sensitive topic. And regardless of political stripe, I think that um, people on either side have differing opinions, conservative, liberal, whatever. Um, So in my personal opinion, they should either be given a higher degree of sovereignty over their land, whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, much in the way the U.S. does where they're semi-autonomous. But then that would eliminate... That would give them a clear distinction of where their borders are, where their land mm-hmm. is, and the responsibilities associated with that. And then the level of government assistance, special privileges they get as a racial group decrease over time if that's more uh, uh, convenient. You either do that, that's one, that's one possible solution, and the other is just fully integrate them as, uh, as a community. Happen. Okay, then I don't, I don't, I honestly, I don't see another solution because. These, they, they're not monolithic, as you said, Amara. Uh, there's multiple, I'm sure hundreds, maybe even thousands of tribes across yeah, Canada. Yeah, probably thousands. Uh, a, a singular political solution is mm-hmm. that would appease all of them is, I think, uh, unrealistic. So either give them more sovereignty with less strings attached or uh, just say, well, just come join Canada. It's the 21st century. Well, what's interesting to me, and I want to I wanna understand your point of view, Amara and Jordan, uh, Amara specifically, you said that you think the pipeline should be built, but you're also supporting the protest. So how do you substantiate both sides of the argument? Because if the pipeline is built, I feel like the protests are going to continue. But if it's not built, then obviously 
you're not for it not being built. You're for well, it being I'm built. not. If it's not built, I'm not going to be sad. I'm not going to lose any sleep over it not being built. But what I'm saying is that I support the protests because I think they're bringing, like Jordan said, I think this is a bigger issue. It's not just this specific pipeline. And like Samuel mentioned, there needs to be some sort of overhaul of the political system and the way that indigenous people are dealt with in Canada because it's clearly not working. So that's why I support the protests because I just, I think that, um, like Samuel said, it's been ignored. The uh, issue of dealing with indigenous people and their governance and the the problems that they're facing have been ignored and um they it's eventually going to come to a head if the pipeline gets built and this all dies down something else is going to happen mm-hmm. and i think the government needs to deal with it so then let's talk about the economic impact of this because that relates to both the protests themselves and the government's response um has this protest created an economic disaster no yeah to my knowledge there's hundreds of millions of dollars worth of produce that are um on hold yeah. every single day. $425 million worth of goods sit on trains daily. Sure. And then in the, uh, it's wintertime, mm-hmm. uh, in the eastern part of Canada, eastern townships of Quebec uh, and the Maritimes provinces, uh, they heat a lot of their infrastructure with propane, which is by and large delivered by freight train. And they, uh, I remember reading an article last week, I'm sure it's probably even worse now, uh, the Quebec government was rationing the use of propane. And these... This propane was being used uh, in uh, nursing homes, hospitals, rural homes that desperately need it. Uh, so, yeah, I think to ignore it and say, oh, it's just an inconvenience, like you're not going to get your cheap Chinese plastic shit. Like, no, it's not that. It's critical infrastructure. Canada, by and large, became a country because if it's uh, the Confederation, was rec- the rails, the rail line, the connection between interprovincial trade is necessary for confederation. Mm-hmm. It's a big country. It's a huge landmass, small population. We need the rails. Um, yeah, it is crucial. Absolutely. Jordan, you said you don't think it's an economic disaster. What's your response to Samuel? Um, well, I do think it's definitely causing some sort of impact on the economy. I think disaster is a term that's being thrown around a little too lightly. Like, yes, produce is sitting. I've, I don't know if any of you guys have been to a grocery store in Canada recently. Like, you wouldn't notice anything's wrong by what's not there. I think maybe not in Ontario, but in Newfoundland, for example, or sorry, New mm-hmm. Brunswick. There, more sh- Earl. I think you're. I think you're really just having a very local. I mean, you can say Southern Ontario is also very close to the U.S. border. Yeah, I'm talking about the eastern townships of Quebec, very rural, very cold, and the maritime provinces. All that seems to me, it's a protest that's being effective. I think, sorry, I know it's not necessarily the answer no. that you want, but I agree. No, they want very heartless, and I think there's probably thousands of people. I'd, I'd argue more. Canada has been more heartless to their indigenous people than they are currently being. But how I long are you going to There's help. always going to be indigenous. How, how long are you going to hold the past against the, fu- uh, against the present? Uh, as wow. long as it's still continuing, what? then yes. How long yeah. are we going to hold? I mean, clearly it's <laughs> no. not the past. It's happening right now. <laughs> That's, no, That's because, what the about. because you mentioned that in the past, Sorry, uh, the it, Canadian government has has treated uh, First Nations people horribly. Yes, um, in, but up now, until currently. But now you're saying that it's okay that there's people that are, you know, that stores have products missing and it's okay because they're protesting. He's right? not saying it's okay as in I'm it's like it's favorable. Yeah. He's saying it's effective. And I'm I think this I think is a way a to get a message across. It's a, that's think... a giant cop out to ignore a moral uh, a moral decision about it. Because yeah, everyone, even people that are against it are saying it's effective. I'm saying it's effective. But I think what Elliot's asking is if you support it. 
Yeah, well, because Cassidy comes in and says, uh, I, uh, she's quoting you, it doesn't impact my direct local area. I wouldn't area, say that's a and quote. <laughs> well, she's, I did not... she's paraphrasing you. Yes. It doesn't impact my direct local area, and therefore the impact doesn't exist or is negligible. I'm not saying it's negligible, but I'm hearing, like, yes, they're missing some products and stores. No one is starving in Canada right now. Who, well, I mean, people are starving in Canada, but not necessarily because of this actual product. I think it's definitely causing maybe not as much selection as people would like in those areas but I know there's empty I think I find I think this is that's I think it's difficult because I definitely like I mean heating nursing homes is obviously very important yeah agreed and I think that a financial uh, crisis could happen if it keeps going obviously but as of now all of those goods yes I would say as of now it's not a financial crisis Mm -hmm. but that's definitely possible and I don't think um, we need to make people in other parts of Canada hate us even more in yeah. southern Ontario by saying like we're you know we don't deal with it here but it happens there and that's why it's not necessarily it's very uh, elitist on anti- our radar yeah. yeah people don't like Toronto already <laughs> we don't have to make them not like us anymore but um with your let, question let them eat cake right that's it's she never very, said that it is yeah. very close to, oh well um the peasants can't have bread why don't they just eat cake uh, my grocery store Maria prices Twinette haven't did not changed. say that it's hmm. a myth yeah, well, so. she was like 15, so she gave her a break. But well, I, all I was going to say was I mm-hmm. think that it's it's very difficult to separate the horrible history of colonialism in relation to indigenous peoples and what they're doing right now, because the community has been absolutely like decimated mm-hmm. by the Canadian government. Well, let's talk about uh, let's continue on the subject of economic disaster, um, whether it is or it isn't. Uh, early this week, Tech Resources Limited, a U.S. company, announced that it was withdrawing its application for an oil sands mine in Alberta. It was expected to go into production in 2026 and produce more than 250,000 barrels of oil each day, creating 7,000 jobs. The project was estimated at $20 billion and able to produce roughly 4 million tons of greenhouse gas emissions every year. Now, that's not an option because it left, but how has this affected both Wet'suwet'en members as well as the country's economic situation? Sure. So that pipeline, um, the cancellation was announced, I believe, on Sunday. And the, uh, the government of Canada, federal government, was due to give a, a decision on whether the pipeline was approved or not approved on the Monday. And the board met on a Sunday, which is very unorthodox. And they came to the conclusion and released a letter saying that uh, we don't want to go through the pipeline. And in a very unprecedented way, they, uh, I believe it was a CEO or CFO sent a letter to the um, Minister of the en- Environment, the federal government Minister of the Environment, and said... The political and economic situation, I'm paraphrasing, uh, in Canada makes it unlikely and unfavorable to further invest in the Canadian economy. Um, But there's also a lot of uh, weird things about it. Like they had posted um, uh, financial reports the year prior that they didn't meet because of the price of oil changing. And then they, they... it was it was very weird. They they canceled the pipeline one day before they were going to find out if they were given approval or not. So that's just strange. But I think the fact the letter is true, the political and economic situation in Canada is uh, dissuasive towards foreign or even yeah. internal investment. Because it would have created a lot of jobs for people in exactly. the Wet'suwet'en nation. Amara? Well, I don't know if about... I'm not entirely <laughs> sure about yeah. the wet, wet, cause I have to be honest, wet what wet whatever Wetsuwetan. Wetsuwetan. There you go. Um, the I don't know if it was that tribe 
clan, whatever specifically, but it would have, I'm sure, impacted other groups. Yeah, um, I think it would have created jobs, but I think just in terms of climate change, I'm definitely in favor of renewable resources. So jobs now don't necessarily help if we're destroying the climate for the future. Jordan? Uh, yeah, basically just what Amara said. I also think that uh, it, like, actually both of them, I think it's a way that sort of make it seem a lot worse than it is necessarily in the way that they can blame almost the protests or why they aren't doing this now. But like, there's probably so many other mitigating factors, which doesn't. The media has a inherent bias and the way it's going to be presented is going to be presented in the way that they want it to be presented. I just want to respond quickly to Hendrick's comment. Um, I don't think I, I can well, see why what don't you, you read Hendrick's comment. Let sure. everybody know what he said. Um, I agree completely with Samuel's first solution. Native culture is completely separate from westernized Canadian culture. Uh, I was going to skip to the bottom. The second option I was referring to integrating them is residential schools, so hard pass. I wouldn't say Mm -hmm. I'm in favor of forced integration. But But then there's also that issue of integrating them in general. Sure. Because they do have a very different culture. Sure. Well, you can either give them their sovereignty. I I know it's just a tangent. But give them their sovereignty or absolve their special status and maybe with financial assistance allow them to, if they would like, they don't have to abandon the reserves or their townships, wherever they live, the groups they accumulate. Um, give them financial assistance to move to other parts of the country, open a business, find a job, whatever. It, people would say, oh, that's so expensive. Do you think they want to stay on their reserves? Well, I would. that would be an option for them to decide. That would be a very tough political decision. Yeah, but sure. finan- financial incentives... It would be expensive in the short term, but I think in the long term, as we're seeing, it'd be the more politically sound and reasonable decision. Mm-hmm. Jordan? Uh, I think it's a good idea in theory. I think mm-hmm. the issue behind it then becomes more like logistical issues with it. Like, I definitely understand where you are coming from with it. Yep. It's more so like, where would they go? Who lives there now? And would they be displaced by them moving there necessarily? You know what I mean? Well, I mean... In total, they're a, they're a minority of the population, and I'm sure not everyone will want to go to the same spot. I agree it would be very difficult, mm. but if you're talking about a logistical, I think what we have right now is a very bad situation, a bad agreement, if you can even call it that. That is not logistical. You mentioned um, previously before the show that you, you, and you like the way that the U.S. handles their uh, Native American population. Yes. And do you mind expanding on that? Yeah, they are given uh, more autonomy and sovereignty in, in their areas. I don't, it's not a pressing political issue in American politics because, to my knowledge, there I know there's problems on the reserves, obviously, just like there's are, there are here. I mean, every single rural community in the U.S. or Canada has a certain amount of problems, especially in, in the U.S., I would say. But, yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I think it's better than what we have now, which is uh, chaos. And... Just in general, what do you guys feel to end off the show is the future of this of the issue? Will the pipeline be built? Will the protests stop? What is going to happen? Amara? I think the pipeline will be built. I think eventually the RCMP is going to like forcibly end the blockades, and I think that the n- issue of indigenous governance is going to be kicked down the road. I think it's going to quiet down in the media cycle till the next time the Canadian government decides that they want to do something that necessarily the indigenous government doesn't want or the indigenous people don't want, and we're going to end up in the exact same story. I feel like this is just going to keep repeating until some change is made. Samuel, I know you mentioned your your, your ideal solution, but yeah. what do you think is going to happen? Uh, is the pipeline going to be built? Are the protests going to stop? The pipeline might not be built, but I don't think it's because 
uh, the the protesters are successful. I think the company involved, which is what exactly again? Do you have the coastal gas link? Coastal gas yeah. link. They might see because I do see it. The protests going on into the future. Mm-hmm. I think they might withdraw. It would be pol- too politically um, turbulent, uh, and they'd be like, "Screw it, I'm out." And uh, yeah, I, I think it's going to continue because I don't see any leadership from our. Prime Minister. How long do you think this is going to continue for? Do you believe, because we wanted to talk about this issue last week, but unfortunately we couldn't find a guest. Nobody wanted to speak on the subject, um, no matter who I reached out to, no matter how many places I called. But um, how long do you think this is going to take place? You know, we were hoping for coverage-wise that it would still be relevant this week. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, how long do you think it's going to be going on for? Well, I think uh, it's just actually escalated in a certain way. Um there's videos, like we mentioned earlier in the show, of the tracks being lit on fire. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw something that said they were pelting rocks at the the cabin windows and the engine, the locomotive. Yeah. And I think yeah. just yeah. having Doors. blockades in Toronto is really escalating it. Oh, if now you're gonna because disrupt... now the urbanites are disrupted. Oh, now we no, there's just a, like I know, I know, way I know. more people affected if you block the go coming from Hamilton into Toronto than there are in other places. I'm not saying that it's more important, but it's going to get more attention. Also... Unfortunately, I don't know if other places in Canada will be offended, but Toronto is the biggest city in Canada, yeah. and it is the financial center of and Canada. And it's affecting Montreal as well. Yes. Because the whole corridor. Of course. Yeah. But Toronto matters a lot to Canada, financially and in general. There are a lot of people that work in Toronto. There are a lot of people that live in Toronto. So disrupting commuters in Toronto is going to cause a lot more of a fuss than disrupting commuters even in Montreal, even though Montreal is another major city. So as much as I don't want to you know, make the rest of Canada hate us even more. It's true that I think doing it in Toronto is really escalating it. So you think it's going to escalate in the future? More? Yeah, I think so. Because yeah. nothing's happening. I think, um, I know in Alberta, like the cops have gone in, but I don't think with the RCMP or the police in Toronto not doing anything, I think they're just going to get more and more brazen. I mean, yeah. they didn't they block the go lines at like 4 p.m.? That's rush hour. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a big deal. But Trudeau... Uh, it's effective. Even, even, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, it, I still haven't is. heard a, a moral, you know, I don't think protests have a moral stance because they're trying to make an effective statement, and the only way to do it is by inconveniencing people. But aren't they supposed to be fighting for something moral? No, they're fighting for the respect of their uh, respect of. I mean, I'm. Let's be honest. There's a lot of different things that they're currently fighting for, all sort of wrapped into a pipeline protest. But I don't necessarily think that because they are asking for a certain amount of respect to them, that in their protest they need to be giving that same thing. To me, it's basically the kid you've been kicking around for all those years in the schoolyard, and then they suddenly punch you back, and it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa! I thought you were all about peace. What's like with I that? Said, so the this minority whole time, of one tribe. The unelected minority of one tribe disagrees. Let's just ignore the the sovereignty, the mm-hmm. autonomy of these all these other native groups that will will grant. Uh, but that that doesn't matter because there's oh there's like two point five percent that disagrees. Mm-hmm. Oh my Enough. god, they're just like I said this whole time. There needs to be an overhaul of the governance system. It's obviously yeah. not working. It's obviously broken. Um, and I hope everybody obviously recognizes the humanity of even the small minority of people who are protesting. And I don't think that I think the solidarity protests are probably have other interests. But I do think that indigenous people have legitimate claims. And I don't think that they're just trying to be annoying. So I think, like I said, I think Canada owes it to them. Considering mm-hmm. what's been done to the indigenous community, they owe a genuine try at facilitating change. Mm-hmm. And that isn't just throwing money at the No, it is not. Well, that's where we're going to end the show today. Uh, Great discussion. We had a lot of comments coming in. Um, 
That was our show for this week. Thank you to everyone that tuned in and again that messaged us live. We truly, truly appreciate it, uh, as well as those that voted in our poll. A brand new episode of The Rabbin Report will be coming to you next week, same day, same time, same people. Have a great day, everyone.